This morning we're talking about facing the future unafraid from the life of Jacob. And we'll consider after our introduction some good news from a far country. We've been through some rough times in our study here, but today good news, good riddance to the Canaanites, a good word from God, and a good welcome in Egypt. So we would begin with a question, are you able to face the future unafraid? It might be this afternoon or tomorrow or whenever you receive the doctor's report. It could be the end of a season in your life. You've graduated from high school or you've finished college. Maybe you've retired from your work and you wonder what is going to happen next. It could be the far distant future, like what's going to become of me when I'm 100 years old. Or it could be something specific, like I wonder if there are any terrorists on this flight. Last week, Paul Renfro, not the Apostle Paul, mentioned one of Yogi Berra's quotes about the future. It's tough to make predictions, especially about the, about the future. End of quote. Too much uncertainty with regard to the future, and that's where sometimes we become fearful. We don't know what's going to happen, so we are thinking that something bad might happen, and we begin to really get concerned about that. Here's one thing of which we can be absolutely certain. God holds the future, and he tells us that we do not need to fear. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He has not given us a spirit of fear. That must be coming from somewhere else. But he has given us a series of tests, trust tests. And these tests come all throughout our lives, and we'll see a test like that this morning in Jacob's life. Why does God give us these trust tests? We've said many times God understands that faith is like a muscle. You have to exercise it in order for it to grow and develop. When I was a little boy, we were all into running faster, jumping further, climbing higher, and developing bigger muscles. And there was a nice little creek down in the woods behind my home. And we had a game of trying to see who could jump across that creek the farthest. And if you got up enough speed and you had the velocity and the altitude from the higher bank to the lower bank, your momentum would carry you all the way across. But just before you took off, there was always that little twinge of fear that I might not make it, I might end up in the creek, shoes and all, with a good soaking. But nevertheless, the thrill of victory would overcome the fear of falling in the creek. And we would up the ante a little bit as we moved to a wider place in the creek. Well, that's kind of the way God wants us to be, in a sense, in the Christian life except we usually don't move the parameters of faith for ourselves. He has to help us with that. Because if it were up to me, I'd find a nice, comfortable place and stay right there. I thought I had a comfortable place in the middle school. 
Five years, would you believe, in the middle school? Five years. But one day, when we were in there about four and a half years, I came before many of you and I suggested that we need to trust the Lord for one million dollars with which to build a sanctuary, build a church. Now that was a good exercise in faith. Some of us were a little fearful, that's a lot of money. But God did provide. Then on to the next faith test. We need to finish the fellowship hall, which you remember was just a shell of a building. And God provided for that as well. So that's the way God is. He's always increasing the limits to test our faith. And it doesn't have to be just in the area of money. There are many more things. God tests us in all kinds of things. And we've seen that in our study in Genesis in the lives of Adam and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and certainly Joseph. Think of the tests in Joseph's life, big test for a 17-year-old, hated by his brothers. They tried to kill him. They sold him into slavery. After having performed in an exemplary manner, he was falsely accused and put in prison. And in prison, he was forgotten by the very guy who could have helped him, the fellow that he had previously helped. If all this had happened to you, what would you think? Well, you might think that either God doesn't love me or he's forgotten about me or maybe he just doesn't have the power to do anything about my situation. Now, I know that none of you would be thinking that, uh, those things, but those are the kinds of thoughts that the enemy would like to try out on us. But you see, God has a much larger picture in mind. I'm looking at my iPhone. I can't quite get all the details there. But God is looking at the IMAX, the big screen. And he's got a lot of things in mind with regard to his providential motives that he is going to reveal to us in due time. As we see today, his larger plan beginning to unfold in the lives of Joseph and Jacob. Now, I've heard some people say, A God that would do things like leave someone in prison unjustly. Joseph, imagine now, has been in Egypt for 12 and a half years. He's been a slave, and he's still imprisoned. And I've heard people say, I just couldn't serve a God like that. He would just treat people unfairly. Who would allow thus and so fill in the blank? Well, I think what they would really be saying is, I just can't serve the God of the Bible. I need an American God, one who has an American sense of fairness. Well, there are plenty of American gods available for those who would be thinking that way. But we don't want to be thinking that way. We want to be thinking about a sovereign God who loves us, who is working things together into a mosaic that we're going to be able to see later on when he gives us the big picture. How did God use Joseph's experiences in prison to work this framework for the future? Now, you really would have had to be looking at the IMAX screen to get this one. But we've been studying it for some weeks now so that we can see it. 
First, Joseph was able to practice forgiveness toward his offenders when he was in prison, when he was a slave, to prepare him to forgive his brothers later on. He was able to minister to his fellow prisoners in order to equip him to minister to the entire nation. I'm quite sure he had some unreasonable men in the prison, just like he would have later on in the famine. He was able to prepare for national leadership by learning how to serve. That's a good thing we learn how to do in our homes, learn how to serve. But Joseph has to serve a large group of people in an important way. So God has some special training for him. He's able to develop patience, waiting year after year. Patience is an important quality in later bringing his brothers to repentance and in dealing with throngs of hungry people during the famine. He learned to wait upon the Lord who later enabled him through his sons to establish two tribes in Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, one, what does one have to believe about God in order to pass the trust test? Well, you've got to believe in the God of the Bible. And I'm going to summarize some things that the Bible tells us about God. Why would a Christian fear if he has a loving Heavenly Father? Perfect love casts out all fear. Maybe he either doubts God's love or he doubts God's power. Well, God loves me. That's the first thing we better remember. James Montgomery Boyce describes Jacob's heart attitude during these 20 years that he thinks Joseph is dead, and especially when they say we have to take Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, down to Egypt in order to get more food. Here's Jacob. Nobody loves me, this I know. My misfortunes tell me so. Sometimes when we get down in the dumps, we may be thinking that same way. But God not only loves me, he knows what's best for me. And he knew that this training program in Joseph's life was going to equip him for the greater responsibility that he has coming in the future. God is in control. No one can thwart his purposes. No one can question what he does. And it's going to be good in the end, even if you wind up in heaven. Someone has added, the future is your friend if Jesus Christ is your Lord and you're willing to follow him. Well, that's the introduction now to the main event, good news from a far country. Jacob is now an old man. He is 130 years old at this point. If I live to be 85 years old, uh, I would be about the same age now as Jacob was at that time, relatively speaking. So I can speak for the old boys. And I can tell you that the old boys don't want to move anywhere anymore. Unless maybe it's a move that you don't have to pack for. We just don't want to move anywhere else down here. Now if we had to, we would, but we just don't want to. We're kind of settled where we are. Last Sunday, we had the account of that great reconciliation and reunion among Joseph and all his brothers when he revealed to them his true identity. 
Now the brothers are journeying home to tell their dad about this amazing 20-year-plus saga that they have learned about when Joseph revealed himself. There is Benjamin going back home safe and sound. There is Simeon out of prison, well satisfied with his gormandizing at Joseph's table down in Egypt and anxious to get back home. Can you imagine when this caravan pulled into the compound, the family in Canaan, and all these guys were trying to tell the exciting news at once? And Jacob is there trying to process what they're saying. And they're saying to him, Joseph is alive. And furthermore, he's the big boss in all the land of Egypt. You won't believe what's going on down there. And Jacob just can't believe it, just like you would be thinking. He can't believe it. Now, it's interesting that Jacob couldn't believe when they came and told him that Joseph was dead 20-plus years earlier. But now he can't believe that Joseph is alive. Let me ask you this morning, are you more motivated by fear or by hope? I hope that it's by hope. Well, can you imagine what that reunion must have been like? So the brothers begin telling their dad all the things that Joseph had told them. And then they showed him those fancy Egyptian Humvees that Joseph had sent to haul all the family down to Egypt to be with him. And still... Jacob is just wondering. His head is spinning. He, he is stunned. But he goes out to take a look. And he says to the guys, man, where did y'all get those Hummers? They're all the latest model. And with that, he supposes that they must be telling him the truth. It's taking him time to process these things. Now, we just read it in the scripture like it's just they tell him and he makes his decision. But I'm sort of thinking that maybe there are some things running through his mind before he makes this decision to go down to Egypt to be with Joseph. Maybe a little shiver of apprehension because he would know some things about Egypt. He would certainly know the inconvenience of having to move at this late date in his life. He would be leaving the promised land of covenant to go down to Egypt. Who wants to move to Egypt? Except for one thing, Joseph is there. Grandfather Abraham had migrated to Egypt during a famine and he got into some trouble there. Father Isaac had prepared to go to Egypt during another famine, and God told him not to go. God made a prophecy to Abraham early in the day, way back in Genesis 15. Does anybody remember what that prophecy says? And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. What if Egypt turns out to be that land? 
I'm not sure I want to get in on that ominous prediction. Each time in the past, when Jacob had gotten ready to move, there was a word from God at a strategic moment in his life. You remember when he was with his parents in Haran, and God told him to go to Bethel. You remember Jacob's ladder. And then he served Laban for 20 years, and God told him to come back to the promised land. And then he settled in Shechem, and you remember there were some problems there where Dinah got into her little escapade, and then Simeon and Levi ransacked the place and killed all the men, and God told Jacob to move on to Bethel. So now, it's as if the gates of heaven are closed, and not much is being said to Jacob. And it's like he's left to his own discretion for making this major decision in his life. Have you ever been there? Well, we got here a little early, but in terms of decision-making, how are we much better equipped than Jacob? You know, I tend to look at those guys in the Old Testament and think, hey, if God were speaking to me, then I'd know what to do too. That'd be pretty simple. They had it better than we do. But God's speaking was scattered out over many years and sometimes hundreds of years. What if you came in that in-between generation? And your dad was just telling you everything that God had said. But see, we're much better off because we're on this side of the cross, and here's what that means. We have Jesus and the Holy Spirit making intercession for us. We have a completed Bible. God speaks to us in the Bible. And he shows us his great plan for his people, this plan of redemption, And he also tells us about his faithfulness to his people. Well, not only that, we have the Holy Spirit. The fuller package, the Holy Spirit was around in the Old Testament, but he came at Pentecost in a new and more powerful way. And the Holy Spirit is here to lead us and guide us and help us understand the Scriptures and help us make decisions when we need to that would be pleasing to God. We have the testimony of thousands who have exercised their faith and found God faithful. Even today, we have that. So you can trust God even when you haven't received a definitive word as to which direction you may need to go. It's a trust test. Oh no, another trust test. That means a time for a little workout in the spiritual realm. Now, when you get moving there, you may find that your faith muscle is a little bit sore because it hasn't been used too much lately. So it's time to roll up your sleeves and get down to the exercise of faith. And don't forget where faith comes from. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God. God speaks to us continually through His Word. And if we have what we might call the ungrieved ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we can understand the Word. And we can see what God has done in the lives of faithful men and women all through the centuries and through the millennium. Now, we're not going to give the entire thought process that Jacob may have been through, but we want to consider some things. Chapter 45, verse 27, they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons, which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel said, it is enough. 
Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Did Jacob get a word from the Lord to confirm his decision? Well, evidently not. In this case, it was one of those times where he had to just make his decision and move out in faith. Sometimes in life, God wants you to make a decision without his direct speaking to you. You know, sometimes there's a decision to be made and you can just tell it's just God's will by a variety of factors. But what about when you come to a time where there is no open door and there are no ramas or special verses that are going to influence you one way or the other and there's no good feeling down inside that we sometimes mistake for God's leading. It feels good, so it must be God's will even before it happens. Be careful with that one. I don't think I would describe Jesus' prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane as a good feeling that I'm getting ready to do God's will. The good feeling will come later. Right now, Jesus is agonizing over the cross. It's not what he wanted. And sometimes we're faced with situations like that. We're not sure what to do. There is a painful option that looks like it might be God's will, and God helps us to understand that we're going to have to choose that option. Why does God do things like that? Well, Paul the Apostle tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. This is not a blind leap of faith. God tells us things in Scripture that will bolster our faith and will help us understand the way he wants us to live. In fact, about 98% of God's will in Scripture has to do with character, has to do with the way you live your life, has to do with walking in the Spirit and those kinds of things. It is God's will that you should be holy. It's God's will that you should have in your life love and joy and peace and so forth, that you should be forgiving of others. Most of God's will is given in terms of who we're going to be, who we are becoming, the character of Christ. And then God can guide us wherever he wants us to go. But back to Jacob, one thing is sure about a new location. You'll be leaving the old one, and we're going to say good riddance to the Canaanites. Now you have to be viewing the IMAX to get a good grip on this one. You remember that the Canaanites were a disgracefully reprobate people. They practiced child sacrifice. They worshiped nature. They practiced gross immorality as a part of their religion. God did not want his people associated with the Canaanites. But you also remember that Judah and Simeon had Canaanite wives. And Dinah had a Canaanite fiancé for a little while. God has got a better idea waiting down in Egypt. But wait a minute, somebody says. Aren't those Egyptians just the worst pagans and as bad as the Canaanites? Well, yes, but they were a very proud people. And they hated foreigners. And they especially couldn't stand farmers who were shepherds. And so God isn't going to work it out where when he puts his people in Egypt, they're going to be separated from the Egyptian culture. 
Now, the Egyptians were the highest, highest civilized uh, nation in the world at that time, highest degree of civilization, we might say, in terms of pagan civilization. And there were some things that the Israelites could learn from them, but at a distance. They could learn how to build things, I assure you that, and some other things too. But God has it worked out in the big picture where they're not going to be associated with the pagan religion of the Egyptians. And it would be almost zero possibility of intermarrying with the Egyptians because the Israelites would be untouchables in a sense. Now, Pharaoh was very grateful to Joseph and happy to learn that his brothers and his family were coming down. And Joseph, we'll see, has a nice plan to keep the family separate from the Egyptians as they're growing into a nation. There is lush green pasture over in Goshen, but no Egyptians over there. So we'll see how Joseph uses that information. There's something else. Egypt was the greatest military power in the world that day, so there would be no terrorist attacks to worry about over in Goshen. Well, what about the persecution that was coming later on? Isn't it good that God doesn't reveal to us his complete plan for us? I mean, I'm sure they knew about what God had said to Abram, but I'm quite sure that a lot of people didn't think much about that. Maybe just some of the old-timers knew about that. We have to trust God, and we have to believe that he has the future in his control, under his control. Now, the persecution is going to help another generation to get ready to go back to the promised land. You can get comfortable down in Egypt, but we're going to get them out of there by building a little fire under them. Also, the persecution is going to toughen them up for the trip. They're going to get in shape because they have to work hard and they're going to be marching across that desert. So again, God has everything under control and he has it in his plan, ready to go. Genesis 46.1. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now you remember we've been to Beersheba before. Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech, king of the Philistines there. He he planted a tamarisk tree and he called on the name of the Lord. And then the Lord appeared to Isaac there and confirmed his promise. And Isaac built an altar and offered sacrifice in the name of the Lord. And then Jacob departed from Beersheba when he was on his way to Haran. And the family was even living in Beersheba when Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. So this is a familiar place. And when we get to Beersheba, during a night vision... God gave Jacob the confirmation that he needed. Now, God is going to go with us, and when we have to make a decision, God will give us confirmation. But it's not always positive, subjective confirmation. What if you had lived in the book of Acts? Well, we're still living in the book of Acts in a sense, but in that day right after Christ was crucified. Those guys were told, even by the Holy Spirit, to go to a certain city and preach the gospel there. Then when they got there, they didn't get what I would call positive, subjective confirmation. They got beaten up. They got thrown in prison. They got stoned and left for dead. So we have to <clears throat> trust in the Lord, 
even though circumstances may look a little questionable at the time. And God may have taken us through some experience where he wanted us to learn not to trust in circumstances and maybe we go over here and do something and he wanted us to know what we didn't want to do. And then he takes us somewhere else. We have to trust him. But here God appears in a night vision and confirms what Jacob has decided. And God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes, meaning you will die with Joseph at your side. Here we have God's presence and his promise repeated in the eighth and final patriarchal vision. Think of the amount of time that's going to transpire before God speaks again. But God still spoke through these words and continues to speak after Moses wrote them down years later. God is going to be with us. Do not be afraid. If he takes you in, he's going to bring you out again. So Jacob departed from there with his family and all that he had. Verse 26, if you're in your Bible, tells us there were 66 persons of direct descent. Then in the very next verse, 27, uh, 70 persons are mentioned. That includes Jacob, Joseph, and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as best I can understand it. The number 70 was significant to the nation of Israel. Henry Morris reminds us that there were 70 nations listed in Genesis 10. Deuteronomy 32, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel, 70. There were 70 elders in Israel there in the Old Testament. There were 70 years of captivity in Babylon. There were 70 weeks determined on the children of Israel in which to finish the transgression in Daniel 9.24. And uh, there were 70 translators of the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament Hebrew, into the Greek. And there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day. And Jesus sent 70 witnesses to Israel by Christ in Luke 10.1. Now, if you're reading in Stephen's speech in Acts 7, he's going to talk about 75. He may have been including the children of Ephraim and Manasseh that are listed in 1 Chronicles 7.14. There are a lot of questions about the numbers and how these fit together, and it's interesting to read about some of those things. Now, Jacob had a little more confidence in Judah than he once had because Judah is beginning to rise to the occasion. So Jacob sends Judah on down as the front runner to tell Joseph that they are arriving and get things ready for them. And we see that in this good welcome in Egypt, Genesis 46. Now he's Jacob. Jacob sent Joseph before him to Joseph, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen, and Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. That word ra'ah, translated appeared, 
is one that is used most of the time for an appearance of the Lord. So I think uh, Joseph's appearing to Jacob was almost like seeing the Lord. He was so happy, and it was such a blessed reunion. So the remainder of the chapter tells about how Joseph wisely deals with this situation, the Egyptians and his uh, Israelite brothers, and he guided Pharaoh to a perfect decision. He has the family come into Goshen, and then he's talking with the Pharaoh, telling about what they do and their shepherds, and so Pharaoh says, why don't they settle in Goshen? They can settle anywhere they want. And Joseph said, yes, that's a good idea. And things work out very well. Joseph, I think, had supernatural wisdom that God had given him during years of passing his trust test down in Egypt. Now, what can we learn from this situation? The family arrives in Goshen. They set up shop there. Everything is provided for them. We're going to ride out the famine with Joseph's provision. There were lush pastures there for their livestock. So uh, things were going pretty well for the family. And we'll break off at that point and ask ourselves the question, what should we learn from this amazing providential blessing in Jacob's life? He thought his son was dead all those years, but lo and behold, his son is alive and his hopes and dreams have been resurrected. It may not be always like that for us in this life, but it will be in the next. What can we learn? First, there will be trust tests throughout the life of a true believer. I'd always hoped that you get to some point and you don't have to go through those things anymore. But it seems like the test can get a little bigger as you go along. Well, God will equip us for whatever's coming. Faith must be exercised in order for a Christian to grow and stay healthy. There's just no other way to do it. Fear and fright and fretfulness are not a part of God's plan for the believer. He has something better in store for us than that. Sometimes we have to exercise faith to move in a particular direction trusting God to confirm along the way, Uh, meaning we don't have the open door and all the usual things that we would like to have to make the decision. Number five, indications of fear and uncertain times of decision-making or times of adversity would be a signal to stop and worship the Lord. Because you see, when we worship Him, we realize and remember again what a great and powerful God he is. And if he can manipulate nations, he can certainly take care of families and he can take care of individuals. Number six. Providential circumstances may be a factor in seeking God's will, but not the determining factor. That would be God's word. J. Adams writes an interesting little book, The Christian's Guide to Guidance. But he says some things in here for which you better have your seatbelt fastened. Listen to what he says. Guidance comes from the Bible prayerfully used. The advice of others is to be sought not for their opinions, 
but for their assistance in using the Bible to help you make a decision that honors God. Circumstances affecting a decision must be evaluated with the biblical parameters, and the conclusions of such evaluations must be stated in biblical terms. Reason alone cannot be trusted and must always be subjected to the Bible at every point. Now, he's not saying sacrifice your brains, but the Bible rules over man's reason. Oh, listen to this one, quoting again. Peace has no relevance to the matter whatsoever. Did I read that right? That's what he says. We'll explain that in just a minute. The Bible is the source of revelation from God and the only sure guide to pleasing God. Nowhere else can we find his inerrant word. Why then should we turn to other sources? Now, 40 years ago in my life, I would have looked at that and I would have said, this guy must be a little bit off base because certainly you need peace whenever you're getting ready to make a decision to know it's God's will. But since 40 years ago, here's what I've seen. Many people made decisions saying they had peace and they weren't God's decisions at all. Weren't God's best. And everybody else knew about that except them and were trying to tell them. But they were saying, hey, I got a peace in my heart. This must be it. And then I've, met, I've seen many decisions that were made by those who had peace about something that just wasn't even in line with the Scriptures. And if they had looked at the Bible, they could have seen. Many had to make decisions that were not peaceful. But they followed the Scripture made some tough decisions, and went on to follow the Lord. Uh, Jay Adams reminds us about the cartoon character Dagwood. You remember Dagwood and Blondie? Some of you older people would. And one day Dagwood was in his uh, garage, Saturday morning, and he was thinking about taking a walk, and as he started to walk out of his garage, a rake fell over right in front of him. He picked it up as his neighbor across the way was shouting to him, Hey, Dagwood, you going to play golf with us this morning? Nope, I'm going to have to work in the yard. I just received a sign from heaven. And so his neighbor says, Okay, let us know if you change your mind. So as he was getting out his tools to go to work, he found one of his golf clubs. And he quickly ran out to shout at his neighbor, Hey, wait for me. I'm going with you. His neighbor said, I thought you had a sign from heaven. He said, yeah, but the second sign cancels out the first. So sometimes we think about God's will in terms of just sort of capricious things or how I feel down inside or what I would really like to do. Stick with the Scripture. Get some wise counsel that might help you understand the Scripture. Quickly, number seven, we must learn to trust God for the secret things that will later be revealed on the big screen. And number eight, God uses adversity to prepare us for the future. Uh, we know all these things. Number nine, if you have to make a decision, know that God is there watching over you, even if it seems that he is silent. Number ten, don't expect the world to be very tolerant of true believers. You remember Egypt was a picture of the world system, and they didn't like shepherds, and they don't like the sheep either. So don't expect that they're going to be uh, buddying up to Christians today. 
a scripture, and then I want to close with um, a contrast for you. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, do you remember that verse? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear, because fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. Love causes us to focus on God and others. Fear causes us to focus on ourselves. Love is self-giving. Fear is self-protecting. Love asks, what can I do for God and for others? Fear asks, what are God and others going to do to me? And how can I protect myself from them? Fear focuses on today's tasks, labors of love. Of love focuses on today's task, labors of love. Fear focuses on the unknowns of tomorrow. And now I need to worry a little bit and maybe help them. Love leads to greater love, joy, peace, satisfaction, greater love and devotion to labors of love. Fear generates thoughts of more fear. And pretty soon you think of everything that could happen and you will really be fearful. Love moves toward God and others with openness and honesty. Fear shrinks away out of fear, hiding and cover-up. Love is stronger because it casts out fear. Fear is weaker and makes us weaker. The more love, the less fear. The more fear, the less love. Let's pray.